this is episode seven, our formal launch, and we're going to have a session from Mark Mansour, a hematology consultant at UCLH, talking about cancer cell biology. But before that, we just wanted to give a little bit of uh, an overview of what this podcast is all about. So Sarah and Sonia, you've originally had the idea to do this podcast and skipping ahead a couple of years, it's now happening. But what was your initial, <laughs> what was your initial reason for wanting to do this? Yeah, I think obviously in the last three or four years, podcasts have got more and more popular. And I've only just started listening to podcasts in the last two years. So mm. when I started to listen yeah, to so. them, yeah, it's only literally the last two years. And once I started listening to them, I thought, I want to be good if we put something together about stories. The original idea was nursing stories, you know, mm. things, you know, I've been doing it 14 years now as a trained nurse and I've got many stories from many places. And then you just realised you couldn't actually record them and put them out? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. So basically that was it. Yeah. But we wanted to, um, I think, let other nurses listen to it to know that sometimes nursing is really difficult but really rewarding and mm. everyone's got a really important story to tell. But I like what we've decided to do with it now in terms of it's a brilliant idea to get education to staff and to reach not just nurses and like junior doctors. We've had really good feedback, haven't we? Yeah. From the medics about it, which is great. So everyone's listening to it. I think it's kind of come about quite organically because we've just had a lot of people asking for more information about new treatments that have been given on the wards. You know, what is amyloidosis, CAR T cells, and what do you have to look out for? And all of a sudden there's so many new things happening that it's difficult to kind of address that with traditional well it wouldn't work with an email it's difficult mm -hmm. to kind of catch everyone so this is quite an efficient yeah. way of just well let's just get a consultant in front of us we'll ask them the questions we think our peers would want to ask and then we'll then just deliver it over the internet and we haven't really said who we are yet so Sonia who are you oh um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a ward sister at UCLH okay. um, I've been here six years um, and uh, within hematology I'm Sarah. I'm also a ward sister at UCH, and I think I've been here for nine years now, coming up for ten years. Yeah, I followed you, didn't I? Yeah, we both started at King's. Yeah, I worked at King's College London for six years prior, where I met Sarah, and then uh, she moved to UCLH, and then uh, two years later, wasn't it, I, I followed. Yes, <laughs> and I've been here 12 years, and I've been doing nurse education for about five. You've been here for 12 years? 12 Oh, yes. wow. Have you always been in haematology? No, you went to ITU, didn't you? Did ITU at Guys and Tommy's for a bit. And then, then came back? Came back, yeah. Oh, good. Mm. I think I'm, because I did the teaching post at King's as well, so obviously that's a, I've been really interested in education and yeah. teaching anyway, so I think all of us together have got the same kind of goal, haven't we, to get as much as we can out there to the nurses, because everything the nurses know will go direct to the bedside, and all, you know that's, that's how we give such high standards of care. We would just want to run through kind of what we've done so far. So we've kind of distributed so far six episodes that have kind of covered AML and an overview of lymphoma, uh, thalassemia. Help me out, guys. Uh, oh, TTP. Keep <laughs> like uh, immunotherapy. Immunotherapies like CAR T cells. And then to come after this episode, which is going to be about Markman's who are talking about cell biology in cancer, uh, we're going to move on to poems and Waldenstrom's transplantation. MDS, yep, which yep. is mildysplastic syndromes. Syndromes with the S. Yeah, it's not just one. And, uh, <laughs> There's more and then one. That, that, that's the first 10 episodes. And then the next series will get a bit broader and a bit less yeah. hematology. So do we want to say where you can subscribe to it and where it's available? Oh. If they're listening to it, they can subscribe, can't they? If they listen to it, they've already got their 
Yeah, please. You meant subscribe. to say that, right? Please subscribe. Sonia, say it. Please subscribe. <laughs> Thanks, Mark, for joining us. I guess the first thing we kind of wanted to talk about was and kind of refer to is probably when we're talking about the basics of cancer biology and how cancers, you know, start to develop the hallmarks of cancers gives a good understanding maybe of some of the things that can kind of drive cancers and also the things that should be stopping cancers from developing. And if they stop working, then that's when kind of malignancies can start. Um, that's not really a question. <laughs> it's more of a statement. Um, yeah, so I think this is sort of best described in a, a very good review by Bob Weinberg and Doug Hanahan, and they published that in Cell back in 2000. It's very famous, and they've up recently updated it in 2011, um, where they've talked about initially the six hallmarks of cancer, but now that's got much more complex. But basically, it's like showing that cells have to increase their proliferation, they have to sustain their food supply, that they have to um, spread and metastasize, and they have to evade cell death. And one of the ways that I sort of try and explain this to you, and I've sort of taught this to students before, is it's like being a dictator who has a single soldier, your first cancer cell, and how are you going to now make a very aggressive army out of that single soldier? And so the way that you would probably do that if you're a dictator is you'd have that soldier have um, many, many children, um, uh, many children as possible, um, and those children to have their own children. So you're building up this population of dedicated soldiers. Um, those soldiers you'd want to be very good at, res uh, at not getting killed on the battlefield. So mm -hmm. resisting apoptosis is the equivalent in a cancer cell, so not evading cell death. So they're very good soldiers. You want them to live very long so that they can live till their 80s, 90s, or indefinitely to become immortalized. So um, a bit like Achilles, you know, so that they can um, go on fighting forever. And as they build up this army that is um, growing in this area, in the analogy in your body, it obviously has to be sustained with food. Um, and so that's providing, uh, you have to build roads and train tracks to bring food in to supply that army, and that's angiogenesis in, in cells. So that's solid tumors that build their own blood vessels to bring in nutrients to supply this building cancer mass. And once you've got those roads, you've got now access to go and invade to other areas. So these soldiers can now go down these roads and start saying, oh, there's some nice fields and there's full of food and corn and we can, and, 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 and sheep and things we can use for food and wool and, you know, we can grow. And so that's metastases. So that's spreading outside the body um, to other areas. Um, now, in amongst all this, so they've, um, they have to actually hide from the opposition, the attending mm. army. And the opposition here is the immune system. So how do they do that? And that can, uh, is another, you know, we could talk about that for hours. But there are some quite nice ways that the, or very clever ways, I'd say, that the cancer cells have learned to evade the offending armies. And... Um, um, and they do that with uh, a series of camouflage. And this is all, I think, um, uh, uh, sort of taken as a whole of, of these cancer cells that are dividing rapidly, that are not being told to not divide, that then bring in this food supply, and then spread outside the body, invade other areas, and in the whole time doing this, actually evading this opposing, uh, opposing army. So that's sort of my analogy, which I sort of... In that's way, really good. Yeah, it's a really good way of explaining and, and for people to understand what actually happens. Is there like ideal conditions that the body would be in for this to happen? So probably if we go into evading the immune system that's probably the 
um, uh, one aspect, and the other way aspect is the DNA damage aspect, which we could. So that I can talk about those separately. Um, the evading the immune system, so getting away from this opposing army, this camouflage is actually very clever. So normally our T cells that actually uh, fight and kill cancer cells. So we're producing cancer cells in our body every day. All of us are, and we're producing cancer cells. And normally those cancer cells are identified by the body by our immune system, and they're destroyed and killed off. Now, there are thing about T cells that kill off these cells is they've got off switches on them. And those off switches on them are proteins that make sure that we don't eat and kill our own, our own cells. And that would be, when that happens, that's autoimmune disease. So that's diseases like lupus or Crohn's disease. That's where our T cells are too active and they fight and kill our own cells. So what cancer cells have done is they've learned how to switch off T cells. They know what the T, what the off switches are. And there's two proteins that are very good drug targets for certain types of cancer, and that's one called PD-1 or PDL one and one's called CTLA4. So these are two proteins that are expressed on T cells that are like the off switch for those T cells. And what cancer cells have learned to do is they've learned to make the receptors to those um, off switches and they express them on the cell surface. And a really good example of that is in Hodgkin's disease. So Hodgkin's disease, they you amplify a bit of the DNA that encodes a gene called PDL1. That's the receptor for PD1, that the off switch on the T cells. So Hodgkin cells express loads of this PDL1 on its cell surface. When a T cell comes in to try and fight it and kill it off, the Hodgkin cell just switches the T cell off. It's sort of like arguing yourself out of being killed by a firing squad. You know, the firing squad's there <laughs> and wants to, and you're saying, no, 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 I'm, fo I'm friend, not foe, I'm friend, not foe. And that's sort of essentially what your um, cancer cells uh, are doing. Just on a side note, so is that the sort of mechanism in Hodgkin's that means these patients need to have like a radiated blood, for example? So it's like their their, their impact on the T cells is quite profound. Yeah, compared so to like a, a different type of non-Hodgkin's. Yeah, that's right. So the, so it's a, you get. Hodgkin's a very interesting disease because actually the bulk of a node in or the lymphoma in Hodgkin cells is made up of predominantly of actually infiltrating immune cells. There's hardly any Reed-Sternberg cells in there. It's a minor, very small minority of the actual cells. Unlike something like Burkitt's, which is all just full of cancer cells, um, Hodgkin's has got a few Reed-Sternberg cells, the Hodgkin cells, and then it's full of immune cells. And so you get this big immune dysregulation. And lots of those immune cells actually are T-regulatory cells. So these are not active at, at killing the tumors. Um, and so your whole immune system does get switched in, in Hodgkin's disease. Mm -hmm. Kind of going back to the analogy you were, you were talking about at the beginning, how many things have to go wrong or how many things have to kind of dysregulate for, for something like a cancer to develop? Because it can't just be one thing on its own. No, absolutely. So it, you start with DNA damage. So you have to, I mean, all cancers are really, almost all cancers are driven by DNA damage. I mean, there's some that are driven by viruses, but many are driven by DNA damage. Um, and that DNA damage can come from the environment, so that's the most common way that we are exposed to that. So the classic ones, things like sunlight or UV light causing skin cancers and melanomas or um, smoking and tobacco causing lung cancers. So those are sources of DNA damage that then cause mutations in the DNA. And so those mutations can be very simple, single base pair changes. So just one of the ATCs or Gs can be just changed to another ATC or G, and that can have an effect on the protein. 
um, either activating it if it's an oncogene or inactivating it if it's a tumor suppressor or it can cause chromosomal damage and that means that the usual 46xy chromosomes actually get messed up in their numbers so that you end up with extra chromosomes or losing chromosomes and that's something you see more commonly in solid cancers or in acute lymphoblastic um, uh, leukemia and people call that aneuploidy when the number of chromosomes is changed so you get all this DNA damage um, and that DNA damage on the whole activates a pathway in those cells that self causes self-destruction so uh, we get dna damage all the time and those cells usually self-destruct because they have an inbuilt self-destruction mechanism and it's through a protein called p53 and the p53 gene is like the guardian of the genome and it goes and checks for dna damage and if there's too much dna damage it will cause those cells to stop dividing and then to die and that's a big protector against getting cancer the thing is, if you get DNA damage in the wrong place, then you can have cancer. So, as I mentioned, there are um, only 2% of our whole genome is actually encoded for genes. The 98% of it is encoded for what people thought was junk DNA. But actually, if you make a mutation in exactly the right place, you can actually activate an oncogene or inactivate a, a tumor suppressor. So part of it is chance. So part of it comes down to pure chance, as in the more DNA damage you're exposed to, the more likely you are to eventually get damage in an oncogene um, or in a tumor suppressor. So obviously the more you sit out in the sun without sun cream on, the more chance over your lifetime, particularly if you experience burning when you're young, um, the more chance you will have of getting a skin cancer or melanoma. Um, whereas if you um, stay in the shade the whole time, you've reduced the DNA damage, the chance of you getting DNA damage in the wrong protein or the wrong part of the gene is less likely. So you can, there's that risk associated with the risk of DNA damage. Um, and then there's on the other side is, is the risk is what's happening to your microenvironment um, around those cells, including these immune cells. So if your immune system is suppressed, then you're more prone to getting cancers. And we know that because patients who are on long-term immunosuppressants are particularly prone to getting things like lymphoma. So, and uh, I think that sort of shows that, that, that immune surveillance is really important in protecting from cancer. And would you say that, so patients that have been treated with one type of chemotherapy for one cancer because of the damage then done that causes an, another cancer and a different type of cancer. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more of that now because um, patients are living longer and longer from their primary cancers. So we're seeing patients particularly have had radiation therapy. So for instance, uh, patients have had mediastinal radiotherapy for a mediastinal mass such as Hodgkin's disease and are developing breast cancer as a result of that. Or we're seeing patients who've had radiotherapy for a prostate cancer who are then developing myelodysplasia and then acute leukemia um, because of damage to the underlying bone marrow. And again, it's this making breaks in your DNA um, is, is the big risk factor. One of the interesting non-environmental risk factors that there are um, that is very relevant to haematology is what we see in lymphoid malignancies. So most of the patients who come in with haematological malignancies have not been, it's not driven by a risk factor. It's not driven by smoking or lying out in the sun or drinking alcohol. The risk factor actually is inherent in those cells and particularly in lymphoid cells. So lymphoid cells, that's cells that make our B cells and our T cells. As you develop your B cells and your T cells, you actually have to cause DNA damage um, to make your B cell and T cell repertoire. And what that means is it makes damage in the T cell receptor or the B cell receptor that then rearranges in a very particular order to make a receptor that is able to recognize any 
foreign invading um, bug or, uh, or pathogen. Um, so we have actually on our cell surface, our B cells and T cells have got expressed lots and lots of different um, B cell receptors and T cell receptors that have been produced by DNA damage from a gene called RAG. The RAG chops up the, um, the T cell receptor and the, the B cell receptor makes these rearrangements so that we can have this repertoire to identify any bug that comes in and attack it. Now, the problem with RAG is that while it's designed to cut exactly on the T cell receptor and the B cell receptor, occasionally it starts putting cuts in DNA at places it's not meant to. And that causes DNA damage, that can cause mutations, and more classically with lots of the lymphoid malignancies, it causes translocations, and, and that's where two chromosomes are joined together. And can this damage be passed on? So passed on to children, and is that...? So most of the... Most of the hematological malignancies are not inherited, so they're not in the germline, as in they won't be in, uh, be passed down to, to the offspring. Um, so most of those things happen as one develops um, through their lifetime. So they were what you call somatic mutations or translocations. However, there are certain predisposing risk factors that can be inherited. Um, and I mentioned the gene p53 before, so um, actually there are families with a, uh, a syndrome called Lee Fraumeni syndrome, which where there's a one copy of p53 is actually mutated and doesn't work. So this is, this is what I mentioned was that the p53 is the guardian of the genome that's going around and making sure that cells that have got DNA damage self-destruct. So if you've actually got a damaged p53 protein, you can't do that. So cells that have DNA damage actually go on to carry on living in the body. And that means over time you get a very, very high risk of getting um, malignancy. And in fact, the risk of getting sarcomas is very near 100%. And the risk of getting leukemias is extremely high. Um, and we've had patients with the combination of both of those um, diseases. And those are inherited. So if you have Lee the chance of your offspring having for how many is 50 percent it's autosomal dominant so it sounds like you know mutations are an inherent part of kind of you know our body requires mutations in, or, in order to function in health but also the, the knock-on effect is we're at risk of cancers potentially with you know more exposure and an aging population we see more of it and what what impact does that kind of have on treatment to what extent does the way you your mutations occur impact how well you can do through for you know aiming for a cure yeah that's a really good point because essentially what we're looking at is darwinism so you know as as you say it's an inherent part of uh, of nature that we have learnt um, or we experience dna damage and that's part of our evolution um, and a really good example of that just as a sort of uh, uh, as a side point is is the the story of the white peppered moth, which I don't know if you know, but this no. white peppered moth, it lives um, on walls and trees that are white. And uh, in the population, about one in a hundred of those peppered moths is actually black. Now the birds find those peppered black ones on the white walls very easily and come and eat them off. So that population of with this black mutation um, never actually gave, gives them a an advantage. Now during the Industrial Revolution, huge amounts of certain carbon was being churned out into the environment and the walls that were once white and the trees that were once white actually now become black. And all those white moths are now 
very easy to spot for the um, predators and they that population then changes and over a period of about 50 years the white peppered moth became the black peppered moth and so 99% of the moths were then black and the white ones were very very rare and that just shows the evolutionary pressure that you can put onto an environment where a mutation gives you an advantage. Now actually as the carbon levels dropped in the 20th century the population shifted back the other way so this shows real evolution <laughs> yeah. in practice over mm. in real time and Incredible. actually in, that's what happens with cancer so under pressure and it's not it's not predator pressure but under pressure from chemotherapy that is targeted to kill certain cells you can select out cells that are resistant to chemotherapy just the way that antibiotics select out bacteria that are resistant and so what we see and we tend to see is subclones, little tiny amounts of cells, sometimes one in a million of your leukemia cells, for instance, might have a mutation in P53, for instance, and your the chemo is very, very good at getting rid of all the other cells, but this cell with a mutation in P53 that does not know how to die with chemotherapy survives on, and it lives there very quietly, maybe for a year, maybe for two years, maybe even longer. We've seen even patients with 20 years, uh, uh, who've relapsed 20 years later. Um, and this is an acute disease that you expect, like, you know, it would have presented very quickly, it would have grown very quickly, but then it's sitting kind of hiding quiescent, away. hiding away yeah. for a prolonged yeah. period. Okay. That's very clear, and and you know a lot of the drugs we use in in especially in leukemia are there to target dividing cells, and so one of the quite clever ways that cells that tumor cells decide to evade these drugs, like cytarabine, for instance, that was a classic drug that targets dividing cells, is they go quiescent, they stop dividing, they just sit there very dormant, and that by going like that, they actually protect themselves from um, from uh, this drug, and that's why actually one of the drugs sometimes you'll see a uh, we use a, a protocol called Flagida with the fludarabine with GCSF. So patients are actually given GCSF before the chemotherapy. And the idea behind that was that GCSF would stimulate these leukemia cells to actually start dividing and make them more susceptible to, to the, the cytarabine. So for the patients that have relapsed, are we, are we thinking that, that there were cells that were hiding the whole time? And why is it then more difficult to treat later on in a relapse as well? Is that because they've had more chemotherapy that's done more damage? So there is, yeah, it's a good question. So either the most of the time that resistant cell existed in there in the first place, but was just in a very small population of cells and it's just selected, it's been selected out. Because actually cancer cells and, uh, and, and uh, tumours and leukemias, although they're some, you call them one disease, they're actually made up of a highly heterogeneous disease where all the cells are actually have evolved separately under separate pressures and so the DNA damage is different in lots of those cells so you get this very um, genetically diverse population um, of, of cancer cells and by treating with drugs you tend to kill off the most sensitive cells and you're just selecting for the ones that are most um, resistant. Now there are some occasional times where we think that the therapy itself has caused a mutation that has then led the disease to come back. For instance, we, you know, if you have um, a total body irradiation as part of a transplant, you're irradiating all your cells and so over time actually there's a higher risk of having a secondary malignancy including, including things like lymphoma and other types of leukemia um, over time and that's just so inherent to the therapy that we've, we've given. Are we able to determine from diagnosis now when the when a patient would have cells like this? And does that then influence what we give them? 
really good question. We're not there yet, um, but uh, for instance, the P53 gene, which I talked about before, we know um, that um, patients, particularly with AML or myelodysplasia, who have got mutations in p53 that they're very unlikely to respond to intensive chemotherapy and obviously intensive chemotherapy particularly in an older patient is associated with a lot of morbidity and mortality and so putting patients through those sort of protocols when we know that the outcome is not going to be very um, good means that we're now testing most of our patients for p53 abnormalities before doing that now sometimes what we find is there's a small little clone of very low level clone of p53 cells there and they're very worrying. The problem is targeting cells that have got ab uh, abnormal p53 has proven really uh, very difficult. And is there any studies at the moment looking into what we can do about that? So at the moment our for things like AML with mutant p53 we tend to do transplants, allogeneic transplantation, but actually unfortunately the outcome after transplantation is really bad and actually we very rarely cure patients with mutant p53, even with a transplant. So we need all different ways. Now there's one very interesting approach now is to target the immortalization genes, the genes that lead these cells to evade apoptosis and not to die. And some of those genes are uh, one of the, probably the most, the best known gene uh, there is a gene called BCL2. So this is a gene that's activated in disease like follicular lymphoma, but it actually seems to be activated in many types of cancer, including in um, AML. And the thing about BCL2 is it works right on the mitochondria. The mitochondria is the, it's the, it is the firing squad inside the cell. As soon as you activate the mitochondria in the cell, that cell will die, whether P53 is present or not. And BCL2 sits on that surface of those mitochondria. Um, and when it's highly expressed, it prevents those cells from dying. Now, because it bypasses this whole P53 mechanism, there's been a real interest in making inhibitors to BCL2. And we've got an inhibitor that's now FDA approved um, for CLL and follicular lymphoma, um, and NICE approved, um, um, and it's called Venetoclax, and that's a, an orally taken BCL2 inhibitor. And it was specifically made for diseases that had activated BCL2. But what we found is because it bypasses these P53 pathway, it's very interesting now to use it in AML. And so it's now being given in combination with a drug called azacitidine that we use very commonly in patients with MDS and AML. Um, and venetoclax with azacitidine combination is probably one of the most exciting combos that's coming out for bad risk AML mm. because we've seen patients with mutant P53 who have got sustained remissions with that. And so, so I think and that's it's not as toxic as some of the, the, the big chemo courses we could throw at it. Yeah, so that ultimately wouldn't work as well. Yeah, exactly. So we're now avoiding the toxicity. This is outpatient-based treatment, avoiding inpatient stay, avoiding all those ICU admissions and terrible mucositis and things that you see with intensive chemotherapy with better outcomes. So we are moving in that direction, fortunately. And for patients, would you give an initial treatment of something like dark chemotherapy to try and get an inner remission and then put them on this treatment, or would you start this treatment from the beginning? I don't think anyone knows the answer to okay. that yet. Um, so, um, but probably what will happen is we will screen patients for 
complex chromosomal karyotypes, so that's where you have uh, extra or reduced number of chromosomes, um, and that's a sign that your p53 is not working. Now, if you've got that a complex karyotype in AML or MDS, the outcomes of, to intensive chemo is very bad, so it's probably not even worth trying to give a DAR chemo, um, even in a young patient, and that probably what we should be doing for those patients, first line is giving them something like venetoclax and azacitidine. Um, and with a plan potentially to go into transplant. And then this whole thing, idea after transplant is actually going on to maintenance therapy and that's um, to try and prevent these cells from uh, uh, coming back. So treating it as then maybe a, a long-term condition yeah, rather than treatment and then stop. So there is a real sort of we're not really used to that with AML, are we? I mean, ALL, you kind of think of as being like a long course with maintenance, yeah. but AML typically kind of seems like something you're either treating or you're, you're not managing to treat, and it's sort of kind of one or the other. Yeah, I think maintenance therapy is becoming, the concept of maintenance therapy in AML is, is, uh, is becoming more uh, sort of appealing, and uh, one of the trials recently was using a drug called midostorin, so that's a FLT3 inhibitor for patients with AML with a FLT3 mutation. And the trial showed actually not only giving the midostorin with the chemo, with your DAR and your high-dose cytarabine, but actually maintaining patients on midostorin for a year after treatment actually prevents relapse. And it's made about a 10% difference in right. overall uh, survival in, in AML patients with FLT3 mutations. Um, and they're actually thinking of using this also after transplant in FLT3 positive um, uh, patients. Yeah. I think it's such a change from how we've always treated these patients and so much is changing. Um, quite, it feels like it's changing really quickly the more that you're finding out What's the next steps in something like this, so for patients being started to be treated like this on the wards? So, I mean, I, I mean, hopefully not on the wards. I think that's the key. So if you think about CLL, we used to have CLL patients, you know, decades ago, we would have wards full of CLL patients who were at the end stage of resistant disease who'd failed the CHOP or the um, fludarabine or... Uh, and and um, I don't remember seeing a CLL patient on the ward for a long time, and that's because we've got many very effective outpatient treatments. Now, most of those treatments are not curative. Most of them are able just to sustain disease um, responses over a period of time, things like ibrutinib and, um, and venetoclax. So um, the idea now is to move these sort of diseases into a more of a chronic outpatient treated disease. And that's certainly the way that myelodysplasia is, is going. Um, and so... I hope in time that we won't be just hammering every single patient with AML with, you know, Flagida as they walk in the door because, uh, it, you know, the toxicity associated with that is, is immense and, and, and the inpatient stay and the psychological effects of that, particularly if patients don't, you know, get through, you want them to spend as much time with their families and friends as they, as they can in an outpatient setting. So I think the outpatient side of haematology hopefully is going to expand and the inpatient side is going to shrink as we get more effective, less toxic drugs. We kind of think about something like ALL and it's something that you know, happens in you know, the young, but also you know, people can have it in their you know, seven, you know, old age, 70s, 80s. But what would be the difference between like a 17 year old with ALL and their disease and a 70 year old? Is it, is it the same thing? 
it's a, it's a really good question and the probably the better, better analogy is with a young child and so because okay. see at 17 starts to be you're essentially an adult sure. but if you're thinking about sort of a three or four year old four year, four year old is the higher that's the highest incidence uh, age group of ALL okay. um, and then you start to see it with advancing age into 60s 70s 80s and actually genetically sometimes those diseases on the surface can look very very similar but there are definitely some key differences and one of those is that the bad risk genetic changes, the ones that are less likely to respond to chemotherapy, tend to be more common in adults. And the good risk stuff that we know responds very well to chemotherapy tend to be more common in, in children. Mm. Um, so there's a translocation called TEL-AML1, which we see as one of the most common genetic abnormalities in children, childhood B ALL. Uh, and we ha uh, that responds extremely well to chemotherapy. Over 90, 95% of children will be cured with that. Um, we don't see that abnormality really in adults. It's less than 1% of cases in adults. So genetically, sometimes they're different. We see more Philadelphia positive ALL in adults. Traditionally, that was really bad news, and the, most of those patients would, would die. Um, now we've got TKIs, such as imatinib and lotinib, disatinib, though the, the mortality from Philadelphia positive ALL has actually uh, improved considerably. But traditionally, that was a bad risk, and that was predominantly in adults and not really seen in, in children. So genetically, the, the ratios of different genetic abnormalities can be different. Having said that, if you've got exactly the same type of leukemia in a child and in an adult, the children tend to do better anyway. Part of that is to do with treatment intensity and what they can take. So children are incredibly robust. Um, you can really hit them quite hard with chemotherapy. Their mums and dads shout at them to take their tablets or make them take their tablets, whereas an adult may not necessarily turn up on the day you want them to turn up for their, uh, their treatment. So um, you can stick to the protocols much better. The protocols can be much more intensive um, in children because they can just tolerate the treatment better, whereas in a 70-year-old with a um, you know, who's had a previous uh, heart attack and is on diabetic medication has got, and is hypertensive, may not be able to take a prolonged period of neutropenia as well as a, as a, as a child. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for your time. That was so good. I appreciate it.